So far, what we've done is establish the storyline of the Old Testament, that condensed view of these 39 books found in 11 different books where we see the continuous narrative of what God is doing through his people in the Old Testament. And we've already looked at Genesis and some of the contents with the theology, as well as the book of Exodus, content and theology. And now we find ourselves moving toward the book of Numbers. And Numbers is where the story of Exodus leaves off with the building of the tabernacle. And then we go into this organization of the tribes on the way to the promised land. And that's going to be found in the book of Numbers. Now, when we think about storyline books, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, what happens is we've moved right past the book of Leviticus. And we talked about the purpose of the book of Leviticus earlier, that it does not advance the story. But what is its role? We want to look at that during this time, as well as we want to consider the role of covenant. As we've moved through the books of Genesis and Exodus, we've already seen two covenants that God has made with humanity. And we want to consider how these covenants work, why they're necessary, what is the focus of them, and we want to look at the major covenants in the Old Testament. So these are two primary ways that God seeks to maintain relationship through covenant and then through what we find in the book of Leviticus, how do you restore relationship when it's broken and the, the central role of the sacrificial system. So I want to begin with covenants initially and want to give a big picture. And by doing this, I want to go back to the book of Genesis again. Remember, when we think about the early chapters in the book of Genesis, we have the first two chapters. This is the way God intended it to be. That's chapters one and two. And then in chapters three and four, this is the way life is. It's life as we know it. So this is God's design in chapters one and two and the violation of God's design. With the violation of God's design, the relationships between the man and the woman back in the garden are now affected. As well, the relationship between humanity and their creator is also affected. It's been broken. And in order for that relationship to be restored, that's going to happen through covenant. And there's a series of covenants that are made in the Old Testament. However, before we get to the first one, it's important for us to understand, remember, Genesis 1 through 11 is a complete unit, and then we have 12 through 50 is a unit. Genesis 1 through 11, where we go through 20 generations, and Genesis 12 through 50, where we go through four, that's where God begins to focus in on relationships with people. But what is going on in chapters 1 through 11 is equally important. We've got God's design. We've got the violation of the design. And then in chapters 4 through 11, we have two cycles that want to make something very, very clear in the reader's minds. The first cycle begins in chapter 4 and culminates with chapter 6. The second one begins immediately after the flood where God brings a, a judgment to the world and then culminates in chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. These two cycles are really important for us to understand. They set the context for covenant and God's entering into relationship with humanity. In this first cycle, we don't know a lot of details, but we do know that as humanity is living in this world, life as we know it, they're, they're up against difficulty, they're making decisions, that their heart is moving away from the Lord. We've seen that first in the story of Cain, where in his hatred, in his anger, he murders 
his brother. And that's got further consequences and judgment from God. And we know that other things are happening too as we read the story. And it culminates in the early chapters of chapter six, or the early verses of chapter six in Genesis, where we see this, this, this event that we, we really don't know what to make of this. But in chapter six, verses one through three, it talks about men multiplying on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them. And the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they choose. And then the Lord said, my spirit will not strive with man forever because he's also flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of men, they bore children to them. They were mighty men who were born, I mean, who were of old, men of renown. Now, we aren't really certain exactly what's happening in this particular event. But what we've got to see is this is a culmination of life on earth from Cain all the way up to this moment. And it's what follows that's extremely important for us to understand. In verse five, chapter six, Genesis, it says, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And notice, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth. He was grieved in his heart. Whatever goes on in those first three verses is bad. And so God looks down at the world and his, he sees that the intent of man's heart is only evil continually. That's the state of humanity. So God brings the judgment of the flood and we see this in chapters six through nine and then life as we know it continues on the face of the earth and we end up finding ourselves eventually moving into chapter 11. And in chapter 11, it says the whole earth used the same language and the same words and it came about as they journeyed east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, let's build this tower. And so they build this tower. The Lord looks down and he has a problem with this. And so he wants to go down and confuse the languages and then scatter humanity throughout the face of the earth. Whatever happens here is bad. It again brings the Lord to the point that he has got to deal with humanity. And so he confuses the languages and they scatter. Oneness of humanity is now divided, scattered throughout the entire earth. And so God is at work here. And what we see culminating here in chapter 11 with this particular story, the, the, the words of Genesis are trying to make it very clear that humanity is in a sinful state. God destroys the world except for righteous Noah. And then when righteous Noah and his family come off the ark, we still have sin. You can destroy all the people of the world, but as long as you have people, you still have sin. And then we culminate in this tower that they were building and God looks down. We've got a sin problem. Now, it's interesting how chapter 11 ends with this particular building of the tower. When we get back into ancient Near East culture, we find that there were towers that were built to the gods. It's very prevalent in ancient Near Eastern culture. And so what is this tower that's being built? If we understand this correctly, put in its cultural context, that this tower that's being built is man's initiative to invite God's presence. 
And oftentimes these towers were worship centers where they would have steps that would go way up the tower and people would bring gifts. They would bring gifts of food and other presents and they would lay them up on the tower and then run back down hoping that the gods would be invited to come and be in relationship with them. It's man's, it's humanity's initiative to invite the presence of God God wants nothing to do with that. God will not be coerced. He will not be manipulated. He will not let humanity lead the way. This is about God. It's about his plans. It's about what he's accomplishing in the world. And so immediately after God deals with the situation there, humanity's initiative, then in chapter 12, we see God's initiative to reveal himself and invite relationship. The only way relationship with a holy God will ever be restored to sinful humanity will not be on humanity's initiative. It will only be on God's initiative. He's the initiator. What humanity deserves from God is destruction. That's seen in the flood. That's exactly what humanity deserves. When they rebel against God for God to pour out wrath, but God in his mercy preserves a remnant in the ark, in Noah, and yet, yet we still have a sin problem. And so it culminates in the building of this tower, man's initiative, but God wants nothing to do with that. It's gonna be God's initiative. And so he scatters the people over the face of the earth, but then we see the second concept of remnant here in chapter 12. With all the people scattered over the face of the earth, in the same way God chose Noah, as a remnant, now God is going to choose Abram as a remnant, and it's through Abram, this one person walking the face of the earth, God's gonna put his affection on him. It's not gonna be by man's initiative, the building of a tower, putting gifts, bribing, manipulating, coercing God. No, it's gonna be a merciful God, a good God who comes to people and invites relationship offering his presence to them. And that's what we have with this encounter with Abram in chapter 12 of Genesis. God initiates with his presence. He invites relationship. And this is the first major covenant we have in the Old Testament. And I want us to look at four covenants. We're first of all gonna look at the Abrahamic covenant. And then we're gonna look at the Mosaic covenant and then we're going to look at the Davidic covenant and then conclude our time with the new covenant. So first of all, the Abrahamic covenant. What is a covenant? We've got separation between humanity and God, their creator. Humanity's rebellious, going their own way, seeking to make life work. They're vulnerable, they're thirsty, and they want relief. And so they create their gods because they want control and because they want satisfaction. And we've got this taking place. God's now gonna reach out and say, I'm gonna invite you into a relationship. I'm gonna explain to you what this is all about. And I'm gonna call you to something. And I wanna give you life and peace and rest. And I want you to know me. And that's what God intends to do here. In the Old Testament, we, we really have two types of covenants. We have vertical covenants. This is humanity's relationship with God. And then we also have these horizontal covenants, relationships that humans make with one another. Now, again, this is important because you remember what happens in, back in Genesis 3. There are two primary relationships that become messed up because of the fall. Adam and Eve, they've got a problem in their relationship. The shame, the covering, 
God and humanity, there's a problem. The hiding, the fear that's there. And so covenants become the means by which people enter back into relationship and humans enter back into relationship with God. But God is the initiator of those covenants. And usually with these covenants, very common in this culture would be the swearing of an oath and then eating a meal together. Um, I promise, I commit myself I, I swear this, this oath that would be sworn. And then the eating of a meal together. And we aren't going to turn there, but in Exodus 30, 24, we see a beautiful picture of this where in verses 3 and 7, the people hear from Moses all that God wants them to do. And they say, we will obey. We swear we will do this. And then in verse 11, it says the elders go with Moses up the mountain a little way and they behold God and they eat a meal together. This is how they ratified the covenant. And so it's very cultural what's taking place here. Now, within covenants, we have two basic aspects to these covenants that are important for us. The first one is every covenant has promises and every covenant has obligations. The promises of the covenant endure or assure the enduring nature of the covenant relationship, no matter what may happen. That's the promise. It assures the enduring nature of the covenant regardless of what takes place. On the other side, you have the obligations of the covenant, which focus on the importance of faithfulness to the Lord, being faithful to him in order to experience the blessings of the covenant. So God initiates, this is going to happen, but there's obligations if the people who are in covenant relationship with him want to experience the blessings of that particular covenant. And so oftentimes built into the covenant are very clear blessings and very clear curses. This is what will happen if you obey and this is what will happen if you disobey. So the four major covenants, the first one is the Abrahamic covenant. That's what's found here in Genesis chapter 12. And you also see it in chapter 15 and chapter 17. It's a covenant that, that isn't made in one setting. It unfolds because there's a beautiful story that takes place, the barrenness of Sarah and how God comes through and just through um, Abraham's confusion and Sarah's confusion, eventually she gets pregnant when she's way too old. Why? because nothing is too difficult for the Lord. And so this actually begins to unfold through chapter 12, 15, and 17. Now, for each of these covenants, I want to give you just a little bit of information. The Abrahamic covenant is, is important for us to understand as a personal or a family covenant. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is God initiates this covenant not with all the people of the world, but with an individual, with a family. God sets his affection on Abram. And this covenant, this individual covenant that God makes with Abram establishes the foundation of all covenants, of every covenant that we have throughout the rest of the Bible. And God gives very clear promises. And usually when we think of the Abrahamic covenant, we think of three promises, land, seed, and blessing. He says to Abram, I'm gonna take you out of your land and I'm gonna give you a land that will be your own. Secondly, I'm gonna make you, Abram, into a great nation. And so we've got the promise of seed. Now, 
we could draw the connections if we had time, but this particular promise of seed ties us back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. Genesis is very concerned about seed and about this being passed on. Abram now is the family line by which this promise of the seed is going to continue to come. And so God promises him land and seed and then blessing. Abram, I'm going to bless you. If someone blesses you, I'll bless them. If they curse you, I'll curse you. Through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. This is where God is going to pour out blessing. Again, we see this right away in Genesis chapter 12. God is a God who wants to bless. And so humanity's done everything they possibly could to incur God's wrath, to be out of God's favor. And then we see God continuing to pursue. I want to bless you, Abram. I want to pour out blessing on you. And so we see that God continues to be this God who wants to bless. Land, seed, and blessing. Now there's also obligations to the covenant. So those are the promises. The obligations to this covenant are faithfulness to the Lord and then circumcision. We don't fully understand the role of circumcision in this particular culture, why it was important, but we do understand faithfulness to Yahweh. What God is asking of the nation of Israel or of Abraham here is that he would be a man of faith. Now here's Abram in this land, so far away from this land that God's gonna give, and he's gonna ask Abram to walk in faith. And we've got to understand what links Abram was going to, to be this man of faith. And that's why he's in the hall of faith. I mean, we see this faithfulness that characterized his life. That was his obligation, faith. Now we're gonna come back to that in just a moment because it's foundational for all the covenants. And then if we were to trace this through the book of Genesis, this covenant to Abram is passed on to Jacob, um, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph throughout the book of Genesis. When we get to the end of Genesis, though, we've got a little family, this personal family covenant that now is growing to a nation. And so when we get to the book of Exodus, we've got, remember the two key words, more and mightier. And so Israel's become this beautiful nation of many people, powerful people. So how do we continue on with this personal family covenant? Well, we end up God establishes another covenant with the nation of Israel, and we call this the Mosaic Covenant. It's found in Exodus chapters 19 through 24. And we really see a lot more of this developed in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy as well, but the core is found in Exodus 19 through 24. The Abrahamic covenant is a personal or family covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is a national covenant. God made a covenant with Abram, and he's now grown into a nation, so God makes a covenant with the nation as well. And there, just like with the Abrahamic and all other covenants, there are promises and obligations. And we got to understand that this is a national covenant, but it is built on the foundation of the Abrahamic covenant. In other words, it's not just a covenant that's exclusive of the Abrahamic covenant. It assumes Abrahamic faith. And so as a nation of Abrahamic believers, they were called into another covenant relationship with the Lord. But this covenant assumes Abrahamic faith. It doesn't replace the Abrahamic covenant. It doesn't do away with the Abrahamic covenant. Abrahamic covenant is foundational. It's faith. And so Abrahamic believers, a nation of them, entered into covenant relationship. 
And it also really functions as a constitution for the nation. When you've got all these people living together, how are you going to live together? What's this going to look like? So just like many nations of the world have constitutions that guide them, this becomes the constitution for the nation of Israel. How do we live in relationship with one another? How do we live in relationship with our king? And it defines all of that. But the promise of the covenant is relationship. God says, you will be my people and I will be your God. It's a relational covenant again. But we also have the obligations. And the obligations for the nation of Israel was obedience to all of the stipulations of the Mosaic law. Now, we've already established from Genesis in the early chapters that law is not burdensome. It's not bad. Paul in the New Testament will pick up the fact that the law was weak, but it wasn't bad. The law was given out of God's goodness. He defines how they are to treat one another. Why? So they can experience the joy of relationship. He defines what it means for them to relate to him. Why? So they can experience the blessings of being in relationship with creator God. And so God gives in this law their responsibility, their obligation is to obey this law. And so we've got the blessings and the curses, Deuteronomy 28 and 29, as well as Leviticus 26. If you obey me, blessing. If you disobey me, curse. I'm inviting you, is what God is saying, into relationships so that I can bless you. But it's going to be on my terms. I initiate covenant and I tell you how you're going to function in covenant relationship. And so they've got to obey these stipulations of the Mosaic law. Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant causes a lot of confusion for people when they read the, the New Testament. As we are members of the church, oftentimes the way we understand the, old, the, the Mosaic covenant is that it is the law. The Old Testament is about law. The New Testament is about grace. It's about faith. And so I want to pause right here and let you know, no, this is bigger than that. Don't forget, when we talk about the Mosaic Covenant, the underlying covenant is always present. It is always assumed, and it is a covenant of faith. And that's the argument that we see throughout the New Testament. The book of Galatians is really walking into this. The book of Romans is walking into this. How does one have relationship with God? It's not through the works of the law. It's through faith. And that was true in the Old Testament as well. It's not as if, well, back then you had relationship with God through faith, but now it's by grace. No, it's always been by faith. And Paul makes that argument so clear in Galatians. It's never been by works that you have done. Romans makes it very clear. It's not by works that you have done, but by faith. That's God's consistent plan throughout the entire Bible, Old and New Testament. We have nothing to bring to God. There's nothing we can do and say, look, God, look what I did. See me? There's nothing, nothing we can do. It's always by faith, humbly before him, begging for his mercy, believing that he's life and that he alone is life, forsaking any other idols, any other um, path for relief or the gods that we set up. Deliver me for thou art my God. We repent, we turn away. It's only by faith. It's true in the church and it was true for Israel. Please understand this. When we get to the New Testament, the best Mosaic covenant keepers were who? 
It's the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they kept the Mosaic law, especially the traditions of men. And Jesus walks right into their lives and basically tells them, you don't know God. You see, it was possible to be a Mosaic covenant keeper and not be an Abrahamic believer. And Mosaic covenant keeping would never, ever bring someone into relationship with God. It was only by faith, Abrahamic faith. How did Abram, the father of the nation of Israel, come into relationship with God by keeping of the Mosaic law? No, the Mosaic law wasn't even around. It was by faith is what Paul says in Romans. So these two covenants, we really need to understand. And the Old Testament is the context for us to understand these covenants. Abrahamic faith, that's the foundation of any covenant. But then as a nation of Abrahamic believers, how do we govern ourselves? How do we maintain relationship with God? He's dwelling in our midst. How are we gonna maintain that? Oh, we've gotta keep the law. This is how we stay in God's blessing. This is how we stay in fellowship with him and with one another. So we need to understand the foundation of the Abrahamic covenant. And then that brings us to the third covenant, which is the Davidic covenant. And that's found in 2 Samuel. We're gonna look ahead. We haven't gotten to these books yet. But in 2 Samuel chapter seven, in verse 14, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men, the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. And your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. That's the promise. That's the covenant. Now, when we get to the Davidic covenant, it is a dynastic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant was a personal family covenant. The Mosaic covenant was a national covenant. It's a nation of Abrahamic believers. Now, the Davidic covenant doesn't replace these. It builds on them as well. It assumes Abrahamic faith. It assumes uh, obedience to the Mosaic covenant. And God says, now as a kingdom, I'm gonna do one more thing for you. I'm gonna make you a forever kingdom. You'll always have a king on the throne. And the promise is this forever throne, this eternal kingdom. Israel never sees this fulfilled in the Old Testament. And it's because what was their obligation? Their obligation was obedience to the Mosaic covenant, which Israel was not good at doing. They failed time after time. And so they, they never saw this realized in the Old Testament. But the promise is not gone. It continues on. And ultimately, this Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, Davidic covenant, all find fulfillment in the final covenant I want us to look at in the Old Testament, and that's the new covenant. In Jeremiah chapter 31, in Jeremiah 31, in verse 31 to 34, we find this covenant prophesied. It says in verse 31, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. There's our term, new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, I will put my law within them. 
Okay, talking about the heart. And on their heart I will write it. I will be their God and they will be my people and they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And so you've got this concept here of the law now being written in the heart. It's a new covenant. Now what we have here is this is initiated in the Old Testament in Jeremiah 31. It's not ratified until the New Testament with the time of Christ. We could go to Luke chapter 22 in verse 20 where the Lord is having the last supper with his disciples, they're in the context of the Passover meal and the Lord breaks the bread and says, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. And then he takes the cup and he says, this cup is the blood of the new covenant. The new covenant, same terminology as Jeremiah 31. Christ is ratifying it, foreshadowed in the Lord's Supper, the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the cup, his body that was broken, his, the blood that was shed. This is the new covenant. Christ is the one who ratifies it through his death, burial, and resurrection. It was prophesied in the Old Testament, fulfilled in Christ, and every covenant finds fulfillment in this new covenant. It's still by faith. The law now is written on the heart, transformation that takes place. And the kingdom will in fact be forever and people are brought into the kingdom. There's this fulfillment of all of these covenants in Christ. What is the promise of this covenant? Well, we find it in Matthew chapter 11, basically verses 28 to 30, where Jesus says, all you who are weary and heavy laden Come unto me and I will give you, and here's the promise, rest. That's what it means to be in this new covenant relationship. In this world of difficulty, in this world of turmoil, in this world where just the, the, the troubles of life abound, we can know rest. And what's our obligation? Christ goes on in Matthew 11 and says, for us to yoke ourselves to him in the same way you'd have two animals that would be yoked together that they would have common movement the lord says for us to yoke ourselves to him and as he walked we are to walk we are to yoke ourselves to him and by following him in obedience what is the result of that it's not burdens it's rest it's rest and so god invites us through jesus to know rest but there's an obedience that's required. And that obedience is to follow in the steps of Christ. Those are the major covenants. Throughout the Old Testament, the last one being ratified in Christ in the New Testament, what we need to understand is God is not moving from plan A to plan B to plan C to plan D. God did not initiate this covenant with Abram and then go, Mwah. I didn't work real well. I didn't plan on his family getting so big. Uh, better rethink this and go to plan B. Oh, the Mosaic Covenant. This sounds like a good one. Ah, it's not working real well. You know, maybe we can just tweak it a little bit, work it out, make it a little bit better. Ah, the Davidic Covenant, that will do it. Ah, this is just all a bunch of bogus stuff. Let's move on to something better. Hmm, what can we, oh, the New Covenant. This will be great. That's not what God's doing. 
as he moves through the Bible. There is a consistent, it's a holistic plan. There's not two phases to it. It's by obedience to the law that you have relationship, but now it's by grace. It's a holistic plan. It always has been by faith and on his terms that we have relationship with him. He's the initiator. Remember Genesis 11 and 12? Man initiating with God. No, 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 that's not gonna work. God initiating with humanity, absolutely. That's the plan. And he outlines that again from the Abrahamic to the Mosaic to the Davidic to the new. Why didn't God just begin with the new? I mean, come on, let's just get this thing done. It's because again, God is in no hurry to accomplish his purposes. Time is not the factor for him. And when we step back and we look at this, we see the beauty of this unfolding plan and all the imagery and the foreshadowing and God at work and the way that he accomplished things with Abraham that are so different from what he's doing in the church today, but consistently all a part of this eternal plan, God accomplishing his work. But I will say this, in the day and age in which we live, it's never been better than this. Because we can look back and we can see all that God's doing and we are living in the culmination of all of his work and the nations are now being blessed through Abraham because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and we're watching it happen. We're seeing it take place and we get to be a part of all of that. It's a beautiful plan. He's in no hurry to accomplish his purposes and he's inviting us to be a part. Remember, what does he want us to do? He wants us to know that he is the Lord. He wants us to live in light of his purposes and he invites us into relationships and says, I want you to be a part of what I'm doing. I want you to be a part of it. And so we can dive into this story and we can see all that God is doing in this world. We can see the consistency of the plan, the beauty of the plan throughout the Old Testament. God enters into relationship with sinful humanity. And so we got a problem still. This holy God, other than anything we know in this world, so far beyond, but yet so near because of covenant, is dwelling in the midst of a sinful people. How's that gonna work? How, how can relationship with God be maintained? How can a sinful humanity be bumping into a holy God on a consistent basis and God not consume them in his wrath? Why not have the flood again? How about another Sodom and Gomorrah experience? God raining down fire and brimstone. Why not? Because God's not just this wrathful, vengeful God. He's holy. He's gonna deal with sin, but he wants relationship. He's a relational God, desires to bless his people. But we do have a problem. Sinful humanity cannot dwell with a holy God. What are we gonna do? God enters into these relationships, but they're gonna be broken. And that's the beauty of the Mosaic Covenant right from the beginning. Look at the end of Exodus, chapter 40. Just want to pick up the context because I want us to look at the book of Leviticus. But when we get to the end of Exodus, the tabernacle is completed. Look at verse 34, Exodus chapter 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. That's another word for the tabernacle. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. If that doesn't cause you to just have chills go up your spine, you're missing the point of the story. God dwelling with humanity. Unbelievable. But how's he gonna stay? How, how is this gonna happen? The glory of the Lord comes down, but he's gonna be contaminated by sin. That can't happen. God comes down. It's absolutely amazing. 
Verse 35, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And throughout all of their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day when it was. They remained camped. Throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. Stop and think about it. Israel's on their way to the promised land and guess who's going with them? Guess who's leading the way? Guess who's in charge? Guess who this is all about? It's not about Israel, it's about God. And he's going before them and his glory rests on the nation. How are they gonna maintain that? How's that gonna happen? What, what's gonna happen when sin begins to just penetrate the camp and it's all over the place. People get in fights and they get angry at God again. What's going to happen? He's going to withdraw his presence? He's going to destroy them? How does a holy God live with an unholy people? How does that happen? How can God remain a covenant-keeping God in the midst of all of this? You see how this is important for us to understand. It's extremely important for us to understand this. And Leviticus provides some of the answers for us. As we get into the book of Leviticus, we see, remember, this book does not advance the storyline. We've got Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers. Those are our storyline books and they continue on. Leviticus fits right into this context of Israel being at Sinai. Moses is receiving the law from the Lord. They're building the tabernacle. This is how they are supposed to live and God's gonna dwell in the midst of them. And again, I want you to see the entire book of Leviticus. This is contrary to the way most people think. Usually people see Leviticus as an oppressive book. All these rules and regulations, don't mess it up, do this with the sacrifice, make it right. And what I want us to see is this is an incredible blessing of God. Notice what God does. I want you to be holy because I'm holy. Oh, and by the way, when you mess up, here's how you make it right. Do you see the graciousness of God in that? This is not a God of wrath pouring out anger anytime he gets the chance. He's looking at people. He knows they're frail. He knows they're but dust. He knows they're gonna fail. He says, I'm asking you to be holy, but I'm giving you a way to maintain fellowship with me. My glory's coming down and I know you're gonna mess up and this is how I'll remain with you as a people. And so that's really what the book of Leviticus is all about. To be in relationship with a holy God, Israel must be a holy people. But they are gonna mess up. They are gonna fall short. Every step of the story so far to this point, we've seen the failure of humanity over and over. Failure, 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 failure. What makes us think that humanity's gonna get it right now? Even righteous Noah didn't get it right. What makes us think they're gonna get it right now? God knows us. And so he's gonna be at work. And so this book, the book of Leviticus, shows us how. It answers the question, how does a holy God remain in the midst of an unholy people? And Leviticus demonstrates for us the proper means of fellowship between sinful humanity and holy God. And sacrifice is the means. In the tabernacle, there's an altar set up. And God dwells in the holy of holies. And only the priests can go into the holy place. But outside that is, a, is an altar. And that's where they bring sacrifice, where they can make atonement for their sins. They can mess up, they can sin, they can rebel, and they can make things right. And it all happens on the altar. And so sacrifices serve two purposes for the nation of Israel. 
Number one, they could express gratitude and they have every reason to express gratitude. God has been faithful to them. He's poured out blessing to them and they could bring offerings of praise. When their crops grew, they bring praise. When the rains came and they, they had a prosperous um, harvest, they brought praise. They brought gratitude to the Lord. But it was also to provide atonement. They were also a sinful people and the blood could be spilt on the altar and this atoning blood would restore relationship. Sin contaminated and blood brought cleansing. And so the blood would be sprinkled and it cleansed and, and sin was dealt with so that a holy God could continue to dwell with his people. They could make things right with him. They could have fellowship with him in spite of their sinfulness. If we don't see a gracious God in the midst of all of this, we're missing it. We're missing it. He's gracious, inviting relationship and doing everything he can to maintain this relationship with the people he's called into relationship. It also serves as a priestly manual. The priests were the one who had the closest access to God. The commoner, the, 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 the normal member of the nation of Israel could not have access to God except through the priest. The priests were the ones who got near God and even went into the Holy of Holies one time a year. And so what does Leviticus do? It's a priestly manual. And what I love about that is because even though God is inviting relationship and making a way to restore fellowship and maintain fellowship with him, we are not to lose sight of you don't mess with a holy God. And so if you're gonna come near him, if you're gonna come to him with an offering and ask for mercy and atonement, you're gonna come to him in the way he allows you to come to him. You don't mess with him. And so it's a priestly manual and the priest needed to know what was going on here. When they brought a sacrifice, they had to handle it accurately. The blood, which was so important, had to be handled properly. Don't you mess with that. Don't you go where you don't belong. You make sure you're cleansed before you come in there. You don't get near a holy God. God, he'll strike you dead on the spot. You don't mess with him. So you've got this thing where God is maintaining fellowship and offering a way so that fellowship can be there. But he, he's saying, don't you mishandle me. And we must always keep that in mind. God is great. He's holy. He's other than. And when he comes down so that we can have relationship with him, we've got to be careful that we come to him on his terms and we don't profane his name. We don't misuse his name. We don't take up his space. And we don't abuse what he's given to us. It's always with gratitude. It's always with this sense of who God is and, and bowing the knee before him. So it's a priestly manual. And what it teaches us is these concepts that are very basic. God is holy. He's holy. He's other than. He's pure. He's righteous. He's separate from us. He's way beyond. He's eternal. And it also helps us understand that humanity is sinful. You can't come near God apart from his providing access to him. You can't do that. That's why it's amazing when it says in Hebrew, Hebrews, come boldly before the throne of grace. See, we could do that. Why? Because of Christ. Because of Christ. We, we, not only has our, has, the, has our conscience been cleared, but our heart has been cleansed, cleansed as well. It's amazing what God's doing in his unfolding plan. But it teaches about human sinfulness, also about substitutionary atonement. Humans were always brought face to face with the fact that they had nothing that they could do about their condition. Nothing. They were at the Lord's mercy and it had to be blood. Life had to be taken. It was either them 
or the life of an animal, they were always aware that this sin had incredible consequences and was deserving of death, but yet blood could be shed. And that's why the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is so powerful that God would send his own son, that God would become flesh and die, dying so that we could have life. The blood being shed for us. In the sacrifice, we have some powerful foreshadowing of what we have in Christ. And then finally, the sacrificial system showed them the need for repentance. A holy God, a sinful humanity, the need for substitutionary atonement, and the need for repentance. We, this is not about, I live as I want, I do what I want, I'll do with God what I want. No, when you get away from what God wants, there's only one way to life, and that's to repent and get back in fellowship with God. How are you gonna do that? Substitutionary atonement. Why? Because you're sinful and he's a holy God. And so it's very clear what's taking place in the book of Leviticus. At our church recently, in the last few years, we had a series that we called, I Love Leviticus. Because we want people to be brought into the story and realize, hey, this isn't a bunch of dry material. It's nothing that's unimportant. This is amazing what happens in the book of Leviticus. God is not distant. He's not unconcerned. He's not disengaged. He's personal. He wants relationship. He enters into relationships. He does everything he can to help us maintain relationships. So when we step back and we think about the storyline and we think about the way all these books fit together and the basic content and the theology, before we got fully into the book of Numbers, it was important for us to show that we've got a sin problem, but God in his mercy, enters into relationship. And just because God enters in relationship doesn't take care of the sin problem, it's still there. So God in his mercy makes a way for sin to be dealt with. He allows for blood to be shed so that we can continue in relationship with him. Now we get to the book of Hebrews. It's very important for us to, to make the connection between old covenant and new covenant. In the book of Hebrews, when we get there, it says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Now, what do we do with that? How do we understand that? We gotta understand the argument of the book of Hebrews. What the author of Hebrews is saying is, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take, to get rid of the sin, the problem of sin permanently. And so what happened in the nation of Israel? When they sinned, they brought the blood of the bulls and the goats and they restored fellowship. And then they went back out and they sinned and they had to come back and the blood of bulls and goats would be shed so that they could, again, have fellowship. So this, this blood that was being shed, this sacrifice that was being offered, restored fellowship on the level of that covenant. I did a wrong. I broke the Mosaic covenant. I come before the Lord. I make it right in the way he asked me to make it right. Fellowship is restored. But what it doesn't do is take care of the problem of sin. So as soon as I leave the tabernacle and I sin, I've now broken fellowship. Again, I gotta go back and, and make this right with the Lord. Relationship has to be restored. But with the coming of Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, Christ permanently does what the blood of bulls and goats cannot do. God, through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, he takes care of the problem of sin permanently. No more problem. As far as the east is from the west, that's what he does with our sin. It's all 
All of his wrath was poured out on Jesus Christ so that we could have life. And that life is only found in his son. And so therefore, we no longer bring the blood of bulls and goats. We've got Christ. We no longer hesitate on the outside of the veil that leads to the Holy of Holies. It was torn and we come boldly before the throne. Our conscience are now sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're new creatures. The law is no longer on the stone. It's on the heart now. This is an amazing plan that God's working out in the Bible. It's phenomenal to watch it take place. And as God moves through each of these stories, we get bigger and bigger glimpses of what he's doing. Right now, we're at the beginning of understanding covenant. Right now, we're beginning of the understanding of relationship and how to maintain that through the book of Leviticus. But there's more. There's more to the story. And the story of God's relationship with his people is gonna enter. It's gonna move into the book of Numbers. And we're gonna see some more difficulties, but we're gonna see a persevering God. We're gonna see a God who continues to pursue his people despite their rebellion. Why? Because he's a gracious God who wants to be in relationship and he wants to bless his people. And we're gonna see that more clearly as we look at the book of Numbers.